Amabella, 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 Amabella. This book does go over topics of sexual assault and domestic violence. So for anyone sensitive to this topic, we do recommend you skipping this book and episode. Hey, thanks for joining the Escape With Me book club. Escape with me, Lizzie Sawyer. And me, Sam Reiner. Into our most recent read. Come with us as we evade reality and go into detail about a new book. We will be covering the beginning to the end, so remember, there will be spoilers. Today we are going to Pirui Beach, Australia. Published in July 2014, Leanne Moriarty masterfully weaves together the story of three women, the golden trophy wife, the self-confident and blinged-out middle-aged mother on her second marriage, and the timid single mother. As their stories collide together, the secrets each of them had desperately tried to hide gush out with fatal results. So I first heard about this book, can't remember when, but it was definitely after it had been published and out for a little while, when Reese Witherspoon was speaking about how there needs to be more female voices in TV and movies. And she specifically picked this book because it was something that conquered complex female issues in a way that was so often left off screen. And she was talking about how she had created a company that was determined to change that. And so she spoke really highly of this book. I have not heard about this book from before when you pulled it off the shelf and said, let's read this one. I've heard about it. Moving on to the Judge of Book Rights cover. Honestly, with the new cover which actually has the actresses from the TV shows on it, I just automatically assumed it would be a little bit Pretty Little Liars. The only thing I knew about the book was that a murder happens. And that's not wrong, but it's definitely not representative of the book like Pretty Little Liars is. My first impression of this book, you handed it to me and you said, this is a drama. This will be a good one for our drama slot. And then I was like, okay. And I got the Pretty Little Liars vibe too. We kind of talked about that. But since we had brought up Pretty Little Liars, my thought was young girls. And then when it turned out to be older women, I was like, yes, this will be okay to read. Yeah, because that's basically what I thought it was. I thought it was Pretty Little Liars for adults, which sounds a little silly, but... It's so much better than that, though. It's so much better than that. Now we join Mrs. Patty Ponder as she wonders what in the world those parents are doing at their supposed trivia night. It was a bit of a gamble to do a prologue, which they don't necessarily separate it as a prologue, but I count it as a prologue. Chapter one is by a different narrator and her cat Marie Antoinette than any of the rest of the book. And it takes place on trivia night where a majority of the book is counting down to trivia night. So I think it's of it as a prologue. And I think it's a prologue done right. It makes you really excited to finally get to trivia night and figure out what the heck is going on. It sets a really good tone having this external person talk about how silly the mothers and fathers of the schools are and kind of getting the vibe of the whole thing. I really liked it because I had no pre-whatever for the book, so I didn't know anybody died. And so it was kind of like, oh, stuff goes down on trivia night. Then we back up and then we've got the journalist's kind of entries in where she's interviewing people and their little snippets of things. And as you get further into the book and those keep popping up, you kind of go, oh, someone dies. Oh no, who dies? Which I didn't know who died. So that was exciting. Was like, oh my gosh, who is it going to be? Who is it going to be? Because you meet a lot of characters, but speaking of statement givers, minus Bonnie, we're going to minus Bonnie, we'll get to Bonnie in a minute. There were some very humorous characters in the statements, and then there were some characters that nothing stands out to me about you. For example, I remember Gabrielle is weight obsessed, and that's her thing. She always talks about her weight, which is okay, fine, sure, that's the thing. But then there are ones like 
I don't remember the difference between Thea, except for I'm pretty sure Thea was blonde Bob. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Thea was a blonde Bob. Who apparently rules the school and PTA and crap. And then Melissa. I think they're a pair. Whenever they're really talked about, they're kind of talked about together. So I don't think it matters that you can't differentiate them. They're secretly the same person. A little bit. Carol with the erotic book club. Yes, that was hilarious. I'm so sorry, Carol. Her whole arc about hating the erotic book club and everybody else being like, it wasn't erotic. And then at the very end, she's like, I found Christian erotic stuff, and that's okay. And I was like, that's that's really funny. You're actually pretty into it. I didn't get the vibe that she hated it. I got the vibe that she really wanted to be in the group, finally got in the group, realized it wasn't really an erotic book club, and then found her own erotic book club. No, that was... Jonathan was the one that was like, I was in the erotic book club. It wasn't that erotic. But in the beginning, Carol was like, the fault of all of this is that erotic book club i blame them <laughs> which was very funny Stu and samantha were really funny they were the married couple Stu is very blue collar but what was so funny about them is they almost always when they gave a statement were next to each other and they always contradicted each other i think Stu's first statement is something like women hold grudges like it's an olympic sport and i wrote that one down <laughs> But there would be all these times Stu would say something and Samantha would be like, no, he doesn't mean that and vice versa. And it was really cute. Poor Mrs. Barnes. Miss Barnes. She gets interviewed a bunch. I feel bad for her. She's very young. Oh. You can definitely tell throughout the book she's a little in over her head with some of these parents, which is true to life. She's like, I just wanted to teach small children. That's all I wanted. Which is extremely true to life. They do a great job on that part. This poor woman. And then I didn't really have any real impressions of the principal. I mean, she gives a bunch of statements, and then, of course, we have a couple of scenes with her in the book proper. But I didn't. I mean, beside the role she filled, I didn't really have any specific thoughts on her. She comes across very principal. She comes across as a good principal because she doesn't want to make any accusations without any proof, but is actually working to get proof on the situation. And with a teenage boy in the family, I can say our family has definitely had experience with some not good principals. Yeah, and that's kind of just the thing. She's there to fill a role and she fills her role very well. But other than that, she keeps a really professional distance. And so that's what I guess I can say. She's very professional. But that doesn't necessarily make you a very interesting character. No. But speaking of interesting characters, but also I hate her. Oh, Bonnie? No, Harper. Oh, yes, I hate Harper. I write in here several times. Harper is the worst. I think every time she pop up, I wrote things like, Harper is a horrible person. And then... Harper and her husband are both horrible people. And then Harper is a horrible person. So is her husband. And they can mind their own business. They're the worst. She is all of Madeline's flaws without any of Madeline's charm or finer points. And she's a Renata groupie. Like, oh, Renata and I hang out all the time. Oh, yes, Renata and I, we're definitely best friends. Yes, Renata. And I'm like, Harper, get a life. And she loves instigating stuff. She definitely kicked me. It was assault. (laughs) Everyone else is like, oh, this accident happened. Harper's like, no, she did it on purpose. And her husband's just as bad. We will pursue legal action. And you find out he's just a tax lawyer. So annoying. Oh my goodness. They're the worst. Of course, on that bit, Tom is the best and he's the best and will forever be the best. And oh my God, Tom is the best. Yes. Yes. Agreed. 
three main characters, not to necessarily go into a bunch of their plotline stuff, because there's a lot to digest. Oh my gosh, there's so much. Oh my gosh. But just them as characters. I think she does a really good job of having a diverse range of voices, a diverse range of character sets, and a diverse range of secrets that they keep. And oh my god, when the secrets come out at the very end and everything comes together, it's just, I... Yeah, they do a really, really good job. Madeline is the quintessential tennis mom. She loves everything pink. She loves everything sparkly. She will pull you teenagers over to get you to stop texting and driving. She is an instigator. She loves conflict. She loves drama. She's loyal to a fault. She has a bad ankle. She has a bad ankle now, too, potentially. The two, potentially. But the way she goes about things, she's very superficial. She really cares about her looks, which allows her some potential growth moments, which is, I think is really good. But her voice is completely different to someone like Jane, who is constantly in her head, and even more so in her head, Celeste. Well, Celeste is kind of in her head, but out of her head, whereas Jane is kind of in her head and spiraling, which is a little bit two different things. It is. They're both played very well. They both have very different thought processes, and they match to how they're surviving through life really well. Yeah, I love all three of them. Yeah, they're all really charming in their own way, and it's always a concern when you spend a lot of time in characters' head, which you spend a lot of time in the three of their heads. It's not like the last book we read where the main character went over and over and over and over and over and over about the same thing. But they do! But it's interesting. But it's interesting each time. It's different, especially with Celeste, because Celeste has one plot line. The other two have about two-ish. But Celeste only has one. It treads it over and over and over again, but at the same time... Well, by the end, Celeste is two-ish. You can feel the growth though. Like, as she goes over it and over it, you can see as she starts to start downing herself more, and then kind of backtracks a little bit, and then tries to doubt more again, and then backtracks a little bit, and then goes and gets help, and then is like, but I I don't really need help, do I? And then continues to go and get that help, and then back and forth, and you get so captivated in the mental mindset and you're like please just leave your husband (laughs) i think a really big thing on that is celeste's thoughts feel real a real person could have had her thoughts they really do whereas the last book was so unrealistic how much and how she thought about her ex-husband because in the last book she had an inability to actually enunciate her thoughts and really dig into them while the three main characters here are constantly delving into it and really articulating everything they're thinking and why they're thinking and maybe it's not the right thing to think but that's definitely what they're thinking and they come across much more relatable you start to feel for them they're real people you start to have emotions for them because you get like more and more into their stories you start you feel really bad for Madeline when the stuff with Abigail happens and at the end when Celeste's husband finds out that she's going to be leaving him you're like oh god is he going to kill her literally terrified it's such an emotional roller coaster near the end because you care so much for these people it's basically you've made three new best friends and you know everything about them now you need to go 
on a beach vacation to Australia now to hang out with them <laughs> in this made-up city. <laughs> Might as well start getting into the plotline. So Madeline's plotline starts. She has an ex-husband who walked out on her when their daughter Abigail was really young and then came back into her life when she was older. And now they have shared custody and it's driving Madeline up the wall. Because he now has a wife and he now has children of his own and he's become dad of the year and is actually active in his children's lives. And Madden's like, where was this? Where was this when we had your first child? Where were you for Abigail? And then Abigail starts to like his side of the family more with Bonnie. And it's like, no, he left you too. And it comes across very realistic. And I think in a lot of ways, this situation could have been handled very badly in a way where it comes across she's just complaining and she's just embittered. I mean, she is bitter. And there are bits that you don't necessarily agree with, but she does handle it as well as can be expected. And she goes out of her way to even point out in her brain, this may not be the right thing, but this is how I feel. And I feel like everyone can sympathize with that feeling. The feeling of I am just angry and hurt. And it's not about doing the right thing right now. It's about doing the thing I want to do to feel better. And it's not that she's a terrible person or that she hates her daughter or anything like that. She just has a lot of pain in her heart. And it's clouding her judgment. And then on top of that, when Abigail is like, I want to move in with them permanently. She goes on and how that felt like she was choosing Bonnie as her mom instead of Madeline. And it's so heartbreaking because Madeline's watched this kid grow up and has been the sole provider for her for years. And now she wants a different mother. And it really plays into the, she's a 14 year old. She's becoming her own person. She's trying this out. Yeah. And she's trying out new things. Teenage years are very chaotic. Personality changes so much. Your goals change so much. You become kind of spiteful because you're pushing boundaries. Yeah, and you're trying to learn where your place is in the world and you have a bit of an egocentric view on everything. Like, you matter so much more than you actually do. Which, of course, gets Abigail in more trouble than I think your average teenager is getting into. Oh my goodness, I would have whipped that child. Just some of the stuff she said near the end there, I was like... I don't... I don't know how I would have handled that situation. But getting angry at her is not the way to handle that at all, really. So Bonnie is all about this charity work and helping others and all of this stuff. And yoga and she's a vegan and she kind of talks like this and is very chill and vibey and is honestly a good person. Every time she speaks, it's like, oh yeah, she's a good person. She's specifically involved in an organization that cares about helping children that are forced into child marriages or trafficked into sex slavery. And this hits Abigail very hard. Because Abigail is a very empathetic person. Yes. And as someone who gets that, who's also extremely empathetic, I totally understand. But she takes it way too far in an extremely... I don't even know how her brain got to this. I can't even imagine. Well, she also has that toxic friend at school. And I'm sure as one that has had a toxic friend through middle school, there were probably some suggestions made there. And Abigail was probably like, that could be an idea. And then the friend was like, yes, do this thing. 
this is a great idea. I just... Because, I mean, as you listen to her mom calls Madeline later and is like, yeah, my daughter's was mentioned something about Abigail's plan for something, something, something. And she seems to think it's a really good idea, which, I mean, is not a vote of confidence at all. Like, I'm so glad you know your daughter's a little bit of a toxic friend there, hun. <laughs> It boggled my brain when she got there. So basically what happens is she sets up a website and she's like, I'm going to sell off my virginity to help this organization so people make bids. And <laughs> Which goes about as expected. And I just, oh, do they not have sex education? I just... <laughs> She's 14. She's 14. When you're 14, you don't think about these things. You're like, yeah, this is a great idea. I'm gonna put it through. And then you get it done. You're like, oh, wait, logistics. But that I feel like, okay, so this came out when I graduated high school. But back when I was 14, I feel like I would have known this is a horrible idea. Okay, well, there are two things. One, you and me are probably on the mature end of the scale and we're back in middle school and a lot of kids aren't. <laughs> and B, we had a good friend group that we hung out with, with similar moral standards that we had. I don't know if she's either in eighth grade, like she just turned 14 recently. No, she's turning 15. So she is in ninth grade. She's essentially a freshman. She's a freshman in high school for us Americans. Or I guess there are some high schools in America where it starts in eighth grade, but she is in ninth grade. This was a horrible decision. <laughs> oh, there's no doubt about that. It definitely was. But I'm definitely putting a lot of the blame on the people that were around her that were pushing her towards yeah this is a great idea and then nathan and bonnie apparently don't watch her super well either which granted kids can get away with a lot of things don't look over their shoulder constantly but at the same time i feel like they've got like a kindergartner and a, and a toddler too i feel like madeline doesn't even live with her why didn't she figure out about the website almost at the same time nathan did her ex-husband. Well, she was told about it by Nathan. She didn't figure it out. Yeah, she did. Well, she figured out that something was going on and she was going to call Abigail. And then Nathan called her and was like, don't get angry. True. True, 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 true. But stand by it. This is just, it's such a weird situation. I think it's also probably partly because Madeline is a more involved parent and thus noticed more of the science. Plus, she's known Abigail for longer. I don't think I would know how to handle this situation because me as a person am still trying to wrap my mind around it. And I read it previously. I didn't read this part today. I read it a while ago. And I do not understand still why this was a horrible idea. Anyway, wrapping this up before we delve deeper down this rabbit hole and get sucked into the whirlpool of potential psychological why things that could be going on here <laughs> why madeline tells celeste and celeste is her rich friend because her husband's a hedge fund manager and a very successful one he's writes an email to abigail and is basically pretends to be a different person and is like hey if you shut down the site i'll make this huge donation to she writes the cutest email from this little old man that lives somewhere in the midwest of the united states about how he visited sydney this one time and he's an architect and he's always wanted to see the Sydney Opera House and this, that, and the other. And it makes him so sad to see a girl like herself trying to sell off her virginity for such a good cause, this, that, and the other. And promises to make a big donation to the organization as long as she shuts down the website. And so she finally shuts down the website and things work out for the better. Which, on the other hand, Ed, Madeline's current husband, came up with a genius idea to just call the organization 
organization and be like, hey, my teenage daughter is trying to do this, tell her to stop. And they would obviously not want to be involved with this or have their name connected to this. So they'd be like, no. That potentially could have gotten her in some legal trouble too, though. Yeah, and because as Madeline pointed out, she used photo assets with probably without permission. There's no way they would have approved this. Mm-mm. So let's sit in there with the great save. <laughs> yeah, and the other legal ramifications of buying a teenage girl's virginity. Oh yeah. Not going to get into that. But that's her insanity, which is the tamest of all three of them, which boggles my brain. All right, let's do, I guess let's do Celeste first, because I want to save Jane for last, because I like Jane's reveal probably the most. Well, I'm not talking about what happens on Trivia Night until we talk about all three of them generally. Still. Because a lot happens. That is its own character. See, but if we do Celeste first, right, then we can do Jane, and then we can hop straight into Trivia Night. So Celeste... Her entire story centers around domestic violence, and she has this perfect life. She's beautiful. Her husband's handsome. They have two twin boys that were a miracle. They have a very fancy house with all this jewelry. Her husband is very thoughtful and gift-giving. He travels a lot for work, but he has all this money, so she can basically blow it on whatever. She says often that he's a great father, and he loves to read to the kids and cook with the kids and spend a lot of time with them. And he likes similar interests that she does. But when he's angry, he'll beat her. Yeah, there is domestic violence and it's not great. There are some scenes in the book where it graphically shows what happens. And there are some times where she talks about it in semi-graphic detail. Oh my gosh, that one at the end. Man, but I wrote in all caps. I was so mad. Just And that's mm. the complexity of it because I want to be straight out just be like, he's not a good person. But to Celeste, things are complicated. After they have a fight and it's usually dual-sided because she to some extent feels like she needs to defend herself. Which she does. And the other side of it, she feels righteously angry. Like, how dare you do this? But after they fight and he'll hit her and whatever, he'll leave her alone and treat her like the golden wife and it's his precious wife for a good two, three weeks and it'll be... She says it depends. It can go from days to weeks and even months. And it'll be, he'll treat her hand and foot and treat her lovingly and bring her presents and all this, that, and the other. It'll be the perfect marriage once again and until it starts to fade and then he gets angry again. And I think they do a really good job of not necessarily showing Perry as being complicated, but showing Celeste's thoughts about Perry to be complicated. Because she goes back and forth between, I deserved this, I should have done this, I was the trigger, to he shouldn't have done that anyway, he's at fault, to just back and forth and back and forth between thoughts of she deserves this and thoughts of no one deserves this, I know the right answer. I need to get out. And it's so hard for her because she genuinely loves him. They had an actual relationship before they got married and the beating didn't really start until after she'd had the twins, not until they'd moved into the house on the beach. And so there's this big period of time where their marriage was actually a really good relationship and then the beating started and now her emotions are like but it's still Perry. It's very complicated. I think Leanne does a really good job of portraying why it is hard for a domestic violence victim to leave their husband or spouse, whoever it is. And another thing that pops up pretty often is the fact that she tries to convince herself it's not that bad. That others have it worse. Others have husbands that they're afraid are going to kill 
kill them constantly. They live in constant fear of them. And she's like, well, there's a power dynamic. Sometimes I have the power. So she tries to almost justify it as if, well, other people have it worse. So mine doesn't count. And I think that's a very interesting layer to put it on it as well. Because I feel like it's another form of justification that gets added onto it. And then there's also the justification of, but we're rich. But we have the perfect marriage. But we have all this money. Everyone envies us. We're different, but they're not. No, and that's a common anxiety trigger when you're hurting. Oh, well, I'm hurting, but it's not as other people have it worse. And so mine doesn't count. I feel like that's something that's kind of pushed onto us by society a little bit. When you're an egocentric little brat, teenager, the entire world's like... Well, open your eyes to the atrocities actually happening. And it's like, yeah, your stuff's not that bad. The world has it worse than you. And then you kind of carry that on into adulthood. You overcorrect a little bit. Yep. And you have to, once you reach a more mature age, you then have to realize that that's not necessarily correct. I mean, there are people that still have it worse for you, but it doesn't mean that your issues don't matter. And so you have to readjust to accepting help and seeking help for issues that you have, which is a hard adjustment, man. It's all about balance. Life is about balance. Except in domestic violence. Just get it out of there. There is no balance. Jane is the third one, and she has two plot lines too. First, she has her little son, Ziggy, and he is accused of being a bully by this sweet little girl, Renata's child. And Renata is a bit of a bulldog when it comes to her kids. She's a little bit of a helicopter parent. I say a little. She's a helicopter parent and just goes out of her way to make this poor child's life miserable because she is so convinced that he has done this to her because her child isn't gonna lie. Because her child specifically pointed out Ziggy as the bully. And so she's convinced her child's not lying. But then, of course, Jane is like, well, is Ziggy isn't lying. He adamantly disagrees that he's not the one bullying her. And so they reach a very interesting parent stalemate. So Renata is a full-time working mom. She works in, I forget what. Finance. She works in finance. Yeah, because her and Perry cross paths periodically. And she has a lot of board meetings and so she's hired this French nanny to watch over her kids that spends probably the most time with them. Which straight up I thought for a while because at one point Harper mentions that they don't like to think about the nanny anymore. And so I thought that meant that the nanny was the one bullying her, but. That crossed my mind and then I was like, nah, stereotypical nanny. She ends up cheating on something someone. <laughs> True. But there are two instances. The first one is they're not even in kindergarten. They're going to orientation day. And it's not Annabelle. It's it's something else. Amabelle. It's Amabelle. Right. Amabelle comes out of the classroom and is like, I've been choked. And she's actually got marks on her neck. And they're like, who did it to you? And she doesn't want to tell them at first. And so they line up all the boys and she just points. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Amabella. Amabella. That's, yup. The French name. It's French. Just like that nanny. <laughs> but she points out Ziggy and the moms are like, we're going to force him to say, I'm sorry. Well, no, yeah, I'm going to say moms because it's Renata and then Harper and then a couple of the other moms are like, just say sorry. Blah, 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 blah. And then they go into school and they have a couple of uh, weeks of just nice schoolness and then Renata comes up and is like Annabelle is being bullied she's got bruises and whatever on her body and it has to be Ziggy because he was the kid that choked her at the beginning before school even started and Ziggy is this sweet caring empathetic Star Wars loving little boy. He tries not to talk about his dad because he knows it hurts his mom. And he's just, he's so, he's such a sensitive little child. He is. And he's very sweet. And so Jane has this very interesting 
Well, no one actually saw what happened except Annabella and the bully, but no one knows who it is. And so Jane has this extremely awkward time where she wasn't there. She can't for sure tell herself that Ziggy did do it or that Ziggy didn't do it. But at the same time, she wants to believe her child. She believes that he is honest and that he would never do such a thing. But it's a little bit Schrodinger's cat where he both did do it and didn't do it at the same time because no one knows the true answer. And there's that niggling thought in the back of her head because the whole reason Ziggy exists is because she had broken up with her boyfriend and had found a charming older man at a bar and decided to have a one night stand with him. And then he essentially raped her. And that's how Ziggy happened. And so in the back of her head, she's like, but his dad choked me. His dad was a horrible person. What if that's a hereditary thing? And Ziggy's inherited this horrible trait from this man, which can be a scary thought to have in the back of your head, even if it's not at all true, because Ziggy's not anything like the man that he came from. No, but that's always a thought in the back of her mind, because a bunch of different things. And so that's half of her story. And then, of course, there's a petition that starts going around. Harper is a horrible, horrible person. Harper's the worst. She is the worst person in this book. Okay, she's the second worst person in this book. I can agree with that. Yeah, took me a second, but yeah, I agree with that. She's horrible. She starts a petition to get Ziggy expelled from this school, even though they have no proof that he's the one bullying Amabella. It's messed up. It's pretty messed up. And then the second plot line with her, yeah, it's about the father, is he was not a great person. It was a one-night stand. He completely destroyed her self-esteem by saying terrible things about her just the worst it's causing her eating disorders it's causing her anxiety ptsd it had to have been i mean she's she was 19 and she's bared herself to this man she's naked and he's whispering these horrid things into her ear while he's having his way with her and it's just it's a horrible thing to do to someone yeah this person is not a good person whatsoever but on the flip side she got ziggy from it So it's very complicated in that it was a horrible thing that happened to her. It caused her all sort of mental health problems and disorders. But at the same time, she got her son and she wasn't supposed to be able to get pregnant because she had horrible endometriosis, but she did. And she loves Ziggy so much. It's just crazy. That's crazy. So eventually she finally gets Ziggy to admit that somebody else is bullying her, that he knows who it is, and she convinces him, because he's five, that if you write down the name, it doesn't break the promise he made with Amabella that he's not allowed to tell anyone who does it. And so he reveals that it's Max, one of Celeste's twins. And the whole reason Celeste was having a very hard time leaving him is she was convinced he's this amazing father, and the best way to raise her kids would be with him because he's so good with the kids. They listen to him. They'll go to sleep when he wants. He's gentle and patient and can explain things to them. But she realizes living in... Well, she finds out via the other twin tattling on the bad twin. Yeah. And so it is confirmed by two different child sources at this point. But she finds the day of trivia night 
Josh comes in and tells her the secret that Max has moved on from hurting Amabella because the school has basically hired someone just to follow Amabella around. And now he is pushing around Skye, who is Nathan and Bonnie's child, who is just the shyest little girl that has ever existed. And so Celeste gets obviously very upset. Yeah. And she's not sure what to do about it at first because that's a lot of information. But like I said, this is her realization that she has to leave Perry because it is affecting the children. Whether or not she wants to admit it, the children see what is happening to their mother. That is becoming normalized to them and they're believing that's how you have relationships with girls. Or at least that's to Max. How you have a relationship with girls is you hurt them. And that's not okay. No, not even a little bit. So she finds this out the day of trivia night. Which brings us to the day of trivia night. <sighs> Which brings us to the day of trivia night. The second revelation that is terrifying is throughout the latter half of the book, Celeste goes to a counselor specializing in domestic violence and she convinces her she needs a plan. She does. She needs a plan. She needs to have a backup plan to be able to actually leave him because if she doesn't have a plan in place, it's all a bunch of, well, what ifs? And that is scary. And people typically pick the path they know versus the path they don't know. And so Celeste withdraws a bunch of cash and rents an apartment, a small apartment in a city I don't, it doesn't really specify how far away, but it's far away enough that no one would ever visit there naturally from where she's from. And that night, the night of trivia night, right after Celeste learns that Max is bullying. Well, let's start with the day before, right? Where they're joking about something. I can't even remember what. Oh. The petition. And he asks if he should sign the petition. And she says, if you sign the petition, I will leave you. And she means it as a joke, but also not really. But he does not take that as a joke. And so when they get home after having spent the day at the school, he grabs her by the face, tells her to never humiliate him like that ever again, and slams her head into a wall. Well, no, he says never do that again. She pleads that she's sorry. He says not good enough and then slams her head against the wall. And then immediately gets an ice pack and is like, oh, honey, let's lay you down. You must be hurting so bad. Like, excuse you. Yeah, and she explains that it's almost like he really did believe she just suddenly became ill. There seems to be like some sort of brain block there. With him. But anyway, so she wakes up the next morning and still has a massive headache because the back of her head is still in pain from having been slammed into a wall. And since there's no evidence left over, it's not like drywall because drywall, that would have ruined it. It was probably the garage wall, concrete or wood or something. Did I lose you? No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. I'm silently seething over here. <laughs> I hate this man so much. So she finds out from Josh that Max is bullying, and she realized she has to leave Perry because it's being passed on to their children, and that's not acceptable to her. And while she's talking to Josh and trying to get this information out of her, her phone rings, and so she just kind of leaves it because Perry's going to get it and whatever. But then Perry comes in, and it turns out it was the apartment manager essentially for the complex, calling to ask if they can get into her apartment that Perry doesn't know about 
to replace, I think, the fire alarm system or something like that. Or to test it or something. And so now Perry knows that she has an apartment and is planning on leaving her. And then they go to trivia night. Yeah, then they go to trivia night. And so the air is electrically palpable. It's just like... Please don't kill her. Please don't. Please don't kill her. Please don't kill her. Yeah, it's... So that is extremely concerning, because how is Celeste going to get out with that? Because you're pretty sure if she goes home with him that night, he is going to kill her. It's going to be so bad. It would have been... It would be so bad. There's no way about it. You are just so... And because he does all the standard lines of, I'm going to change myself. I'm going to get help. I'm actually going to talk to someone. Because in the past, they tried counseling, but they were never able to actually open up about the violence and the domestic abuse. They merely said things like, oh, he sometimes loses his temper. Which, by the way, the first part of Celeste's story was really weird for me, because I have a wonderful husband who has a short temper, and he would do things like, if the computer is not working and he can't get it together, he would be annoyingly frustrated. He gets extremely mad about some of the slightest inconveniences, but he would never, 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 never take that out on me. Even if I was the cause. If James ever touches you like that, I swear I will take a baseball bat and I'm gonna have some words with him. He would never. That is not the way you properly channel your anger. And I can attest to that. I don't even own a baseball bat because I know I don't need to use one on James. <laughs> and so at first it was so freaky because everything he, it was just so eerie because everything she said about him, I could see in our own relationship where it's like, the computer's not working. He would never try to fix the computer, by the way. <laughs> he usually makes me fix computers. But there have been times where he's trying to do something on his computer and it's the slightest inconvenience and it will just like ruin his night because he's so upset about it. And so I get people that have that anger in them, but the way he goes about venting it is horrible. That crosses such a line that should not be ever crossed. It was just so eerie to read that and think, oh my goodness, just realize the reality of it. Because what if he was like Perry, I could be Celeste. So that was the really weird trippy thing. And I kept trying to tell my husband about it. And he was also like, yeah, I'm really glad I control my anger. I would never, ever, ever want to hurt you. That would be so terrible. It's just, it really, it really, that got to me. Celeste plot line got to me. So anyway, <laughs> they get to trivia night. Things have escalated for everyone. Well, okay, no. Because we need to talk about the fun thing that happened that morning. Oh, yeah. Right, with, with, with Jane. There's a fun thing that happened that morning. Not much happens with Madeline, but Jane has a fun thing. Other than the haircut, because she also gets a haircut. <laughs> she gets a haircut, because she always has it in this tight ponytail, whatever. And so she tells the story of the father to Madeline and Celeste. And now that she's actually put words to it, and she's no longer trying to hide it, she's able to slowly move past it. And so some of the things that she has, she's able to stop constantly chewing gum because she's worried about her bad breath. She's able to eat food again. Well, yeah, she does talk about it's better, but it's still... She probably should still go to therapy. Oh, yeah. But there are certain things where she's starting to slowly let go. She read a sex scene in the book for the quote-unquote erotic book club, which isn't that erotic because they even mention it's pretty tame. Does that make our book club an erotic book club? 
now after that last book? No. <laughs> I have no desire to repeat that. <laughs> also, that wasn't erotic. No. It was weird. Yep. She's able to get a haircut for the first time instead of having this tight... Well, she's talked into it. She's forced into it. Yeah. But she still loves it, and she's able to enjoy her appearance for the first time in a while. But anyway, everyone goes to this restaurant called Blue Blues, which I still stand by why. Why? Well, why not? I don't know. Just roll with it. I did, but still, I would. Maybe that's my question for the author. Why? <laughs> why blue blues? <laughs> a coffee shop slash secondhand book library where you can read secondhand books there. And Jane works there a lot. But there's this dude named Tom, and for the entirety of the book, she thinks he's gay because Madeline said Tom was going through a bad breakup with his boyfriend and was really upset about it and so she thinks he's gay jane thinks it's coffee shop tom she comes to find out the morning of that actually it's i think it's like plumber tom or <laughs> i thought it was mechanic or it was some... it's mechanic or it's it's something anyway it's one of her clients because she works as a part-time bookkeeper and tom is not gay no he is straight and it's so cute because i think the either the day before or whatever. He just tossed out Harper and her husband because they were harassing her out of his cafe. And then the next day it's raining and the shop is closed and she comes up to the door. And so she turns around and, and he opens the door and he's like, Jane! And she's like, you're closed! And he's like, I'm never closed for you! Yeah, he's very sweet. <laughs> and he takes her to the back and lets her try off and it turns out he likes jigsaw puzzles just as much as her family loves jigsaw puzzles. And so they're doing the jigsaw puzzle and she says something offhand about him being gay and he's like, I'm not gay though. <laughs> I will say it was a little weird. I get why it was necessary for her to believe he's gay because in the later parts of the book she's able to actually think he's really attractive and it's so cute and they hit it off and it's absolutely adorable so it's safe so I get that yeah she starts getting really attracted to him because she's like he's gay nothing will ever happen there I will say it was a little weird to be like he's gay the entire book and then the very end be like he's not gay <laughs> I'm not gay ha 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 I mean he doesn't really do anything this is the trap the gay trap ha ha I'm not actually gay <laughs> like it was it was a little weird. It was a little weird. Okay. To some extent, it's not necessarily a gay trap. It was mom gossip that she just kind of believed and then went along with. And we only see it from her perspective. There's nothing really about Tom that would necessarily scream. I don't mean from Jane's perspective. I just meant from the author's perspective. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. The gay trap. <laughs> All right. Ha ha! Ha ha! <laughs> I'm actually coming for your woman! Ha ha! I don't know. It was weird. That made me feel a little weird. I do kind of like that the mechanic is the one that's gay, though. It throws off that gay stereotype. And it's like, oh, no, there's still a gay man in this book, but it's it's that gay man over there. I did appreciate that. But it was a little weird that was thrown in there. And then it was thrown out of there. Yeah. They're like, okay. All right. But I did want the entire book for them to get together. So I guess it worked out for the best. It was just... That was a little weird. <laughs> the author's like, surprise! They can't get together! Ha <laughs> ha! You have been fooled! Might have been better if he was bi. Been like, everybody thought he was gay, but he's actually bi. That would have been interesting. Or something. You know, throw in like a different sexuality in there. Like he did just have a really bad breakup with his boyfriend, but he's actually bi. And everyone assumed he was gay because he had a boyfriend automatically. He's like, yeah, I'm also attracted to women. So like, that may have been a little bit harder to explain, though. <laughs> True. I don't know. That, that could have worked, though. It could have worked, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> went on a long tangent about that trivia night trivia night the first problem with trivia night is whatever alcoholic beverage they were serving was worth three shots of vodka <sighs> in one glass it was pink and sparkly and then 
The caterer was late, so they didn't have any food. And so there's no food. So they're hopped up on alcohol with nothing in their stomachs. <laughs> and there are several people that there are segments of their in- interviews throughout the book. And there are several people that admit in their little interviews that they had not eaten anything that day because they were wanted to gorge on food. Everybody's all sorts of drunk. And Madeline is experiencing later life PMS. And so she's ready to kill somebody. And is drunk. <laughs> and is extremely drunk. And so she has it out with Bonnie, who, this is an example of Harper being a terrible person. So she a little bit has it out for Bonnie because of the whole website thing and lets her have it a little bit. And Bonnie pushes back a little by basically saying, hey, I know what Nathan did was terrible, but you really need to let this go. This is in the past. You really need to let it go. It's affecting all of our relationships with Abigail. And it's clearly doing you no good. She doesn't say all that, but she means all that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think she says that was however many years ago. And she does tell her she needs to practice forgiveness and whatever. And then somebody backs into her and she spills her drink on Madeline. To which Harper, everyone else is like, oh, it's just an accident. So-and-so nudged her and Harper's like, no, she did it on purpose. (laughs) Yeah, Harper, because you were definitely paying attention. The worst. So they're already a little on edge about everything. And then Jane and Celeste, well, Celeste obviously has her own issues going on. But then Jane and Celeste get together and they're like, hey, I wanted to talk to you about Max. And they both talk about it. And Celeste is just distraught by it because she knows how much it had hurt Ziggy and how much it had hurt Jane. And she's like, no, it should have been my own child. This is my fault. And Jane kept being like, no, it's not your fault. How could it be your fault? And Celeste is like, "Mm, it's my fault a little bit because I haven't left my husband, but she doesn't say that. And then Nathan and Bonnie kind of come out of the woodwork out onto the balcony with everybody else. And Celeste is like, I want to apologize for my son bullying your child. And they're like, oh no, yeah, Sky told us we were going to tell the school. We never would have had that out with you personally. We would have let the school handle that. And I like how there was like, and we've talked to her about strategies for what to do next time. It's like that, that was some good parenting. Good. Oh, yeah. It's always important to teach people how to handle bullies because you're going to have them for the rest of your life. Yeah. So seeing this, Madeline comes out on the little thingy and kind of scoops in is talking to everybody. Oh, and they're all dressed as Audrey's and Elvis's. Oh, yeah. It's a costume party. This is an important distinction because all the dudes are wearing these big Elvis wigs and have these big sunglasses on. Yeah. So Renata comes out and Celeste tells Renata and it's like, I'm so sorry. It was my kid bullying Amabella. And Renata feels horrible because she's been going at it for this child and going after Jane. And of course, she's probably supported the petition, even though she didn't start it. Which is a point to Renata. I'm really glad she did honestly feel really bad for what she'd done. Yeah, and I can't necessarily blame her for being super upset. That's her baby girl that someone is hurting. And someone is strangling her. They are biting her. They are leaving bruises from kicks and punches. I would be furious. I absolutely understand how she feels. So Renata's also a very good character. That's why you don't hate Renata. Even though she's technically Madeline's antagonist, you see both of their sides. You don't hate her, but you don't necessarily like her through the book. I mean, she's kind of that neutral, all right, yeah, that's Renata character. But at the end, when she's like, oh my god, (laughs) I'm so sorry I treated your kid like that, you're kind of like, ah, there's a redeeming quality there. And you know her and Madeline were friends for some reason because they say that at the beginning of the book and then immediately there's a major schism between them. It's not necessarily friends. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, it's that mom that we hang out with sometimes. It's like frenemies. Kind of. Because they both Madeline loves drama 
and Renata's very good at giving her drama. So it's that kind of friendship. Yeah. And then at this point, Perry and Ed come out and they're all sitting and talking and whatever. And so this is the first time Jane meets Perry. And then Perry takes off his wig. And then she realizes this is not the first time she's met Perry, except when she knew him, he went by a completely different name. And it turns out it's his cousin's name, which Celeste and Madeline had Googled this guy and were like, oh no, it's the cousin. No, it's not. No, it's not. It is him. (laughs) Which as soon as that happened, I was like, I knew it. Because early in the book, Celeste was like, oh, he's so good everywhere else. He's faithful. He's loving. And I was like, there is no way a hedge fund manager who is domestically violent to his wife and travels a majority of the time through the year is faithful. That is BS. He buys you fancy jewelry after being out of town. That's not just because he hits you, honey. I'm convinced. I just knew. I knew he slept around. Oh no, it completely blew my mind. I was like, what? No! Because as soon as she was like, he's faithful, I'm like, I don't believe you. But then I put that away and I was like, okay, maybe he is. But as soon as that happened, I was like, I knew it! Okay, but did you call that he was Ziggy's dad though? No. <laughs> I just figured he slept around. I was like, oh my goodness, no way! And Jane's like, this isn't the first time we've met. And he immediately turns to Celeste and is like, it didn't mean anything. You know. Just <laughs> Ah! And so Celeste is rightfully disgusted. And I don't remember. She says something at him. I don't remember if he actually says anything. I'm pretty sure she just tosses her whatever the drink was in his face. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. She takes her drink and she tosses it in his face. And he just immediately backhands her. Everyone watches that and is like freaked out. So Madeline goes over to poor Celeste and Renata pulls out her phone. She's like, I'm calling the police. You have just assaulted your wife in front of me, which. And poor Bonnie's over there like, that's not the first time you've done that. I just want to talk about Renata has Karen energy. Did you get Renata has Karen energy? Renata has hardcore Karen energy. But at the end, that is the best way to use that Karen energy. Get things done. Get that man in jail tonight. Go, girl. Yes. So I was just very happy Renata was there. She wants to speak to your manager. Good. Come for him. He deserves it. He's horrible. Anyway, something happens and during the altercation. I think he starts verbally abusing Celeste and whatever. And Bonnie snaps and just goes off on him. What it is is I think Bonnie says something about the kids get it from him and he says, no, they don't see. And she bites back with, no, they see. We see. And then pushes him. And it had been raining. He was on a bar stool that was probably a bit too high. And he is a very tall man. He is six foot two. And the balcony thingy is not high enough. And what's very interesting is leading up to this point in the interviews with the sergeant, he mentions that there were eight people on the balcony and one of them dies. And so up until this point, you don't know who dies. Oh no, yeah. In my notes, I go through periodically with the different interview things. I'm like, does Jane die? Does Madeline die? Does Celeste die? And the only real clue you get is at some point someone mentions the funeral and is like, oh, that poor boy having to put a note on the grave. And so he's like, okay, they have a male child. So I knew it wasn't Bonnie or Nathan. I think they've got Sky and a little boy or do they just have Sky? I think they just have Sky. I can't remember. Because she has Sky and she's like, I don't want any more kids. Oh, that's fair. And so it wasn't Bonnie or Nathan, but it could have been Madeline or Ed because they had Fred. It could have been Celeste or Perry because they had twin boys. Or it could have been Jane because of Ziggy or Renata 
because of her older son, Jackson. So it could have been one of those six people. Harper has a little boy, too. Could have been Harper. That would have been a twist. Oh, no. Harper's dead. Well, Harper wasn't on the balcony anymore. Yeah, I know. She was out earlier and then left. I thought about it for a while before it happened. I was like, there is only one way this can end and feel satisfactory. And that would be Perry died. And he is the one. And then he did. And then he did. (laughs) Which immediately puts them into a moral quandary. The spiteful little knot inside me wishes he'd found out that Ziggy was his kid before he fell. I don't know if that would have made Jane feel better or not. I don't know. It probably wouldn't have. But, you know, the spiteful reader that I am, just the shock and... I'm glad that man never knew because he didn't deserve to know. Oh, that's... that's actually probably a better way to look at that. Ziggy is an amazing child and deserves the best. And that man is not the best. No, Tom's the best. Tom's the best. But it does, at the very end, we are tied up in a moral quandary of what to do about Bonnie. And Renata immediately begins is like, oh, I didn't see what happened. And so like all the women are like, I didn't see what happened. But Ed points out, it's like, this is a lie. We need to tell the truth. We can't just pretend we didn't see what happened. Poor Ed. I think the ending ties into the theme throughout the book because it's called Big Little Lies because there are little lies we tell ourselves in our day daily lives to help us survive. And each of these women had their own little lies that they were telling themselves. Madeline was telling herself that Nathan didn't matter and then Abigail was always going to love her and all of these little things where Celeste was telling herself, oh, even's out, it's worth it, I deserve it, I just need to keep doing it, he's such a good father, clearly I should just put up with this. And then Jane was telling herself, I feel like her lies were the lies he told her, that she was ugly, that she didn't mean anything, that she was fat, that she wasn't going to be worth anything. There were those, but then there was the lies to herself about moving to Pirawee just to get a new perspective on life, when really she'd moved there in an attempt to see him again, not really knowing what she would do at that point, but knowing that he lived in Pirawee. And then the lies that came where she was trying to convince herself that it wasn't Ziggy, even though she had doubts. And so she kept lying to herself there to survive through all that. And you see how these little lies come together and make a fake existence. And how when they finally let go of these lies, things become better. Jane finally stops living the lie about the father and tells people about that and she's able to finally start healing. Madeline tells Celeste about the website and Celeste is able to help her. And Celeste finally, I mean, she doesn't necessarily come clean. She's forced clean when Perry finally hits her in front of other people and she's able to get out of the situation. She does kind of let go of her lies when she starts going to therapy and actually creating a plan to get away from Perry. In the end, everyone is prepared to lie for Bonnie and say they don't know what happened. And Bonnie finally says, no, this isn't right. You can't lie for me. I can't ask you to do this. You need to tell the truth. And so in the end, they switch it over to everyone telling the truth. Bonnie is given a involuntary manslaughter based on a bunch of things, is given 200 hours of community service, so she doesn't go to jail for it. And Abigail is actually able to serve with her, which is great, because Abigail would be able to see what ways she can actually help people instead of doing something extremely illegal. And you see how their lives move past the lies they told themselves, and how it can be harder, and it can be 
difficult, but it's still better to have the honesty and living your truth than it is to living your lies just to survive. Yep, that's the fact of everyone's lives. That's something that we all really should try to do. Yeah, and you can see how inviting for them it is to live these lives, how it's easier, but how over time it makes life so much harder to tell little lies in the short run versus telling honesty and having it be hard for a little while, but better later on. I'm honestly just really happy it was Perry that died. I would have been so upset if it was anyone else. Oh, yeah. It would have been so bad if it was anybody else. Other than maybe Harper. I don't like Harper. I want to say she had... How she had girls. I still don't like Harper. Wait, no. All I have is she also has a gifted child. Oh, is that what I wrote too? Hold on. I think that's all I wrote as well. I also kept putting gifted trial in parentheses because this is actually a gifted child or are you just saying that? Which Amabella is actually gifted. The only thing I wrote for Harper is... Is a Renata wannabe. <laughs> she wishes she could be that good. That's the only thing I have for, for Harper. Oh, go back to the French nanny. Oh, yeah. Now that we've talked about the deep philosophy, she slept with Renata's husband and Harper's husband and a couple of other people. And Renata was like, nope, we done. And she left him and moved to London. And she sent Ziggy a really sweet note. She's like, I know you probably remember me from orientation. And I was super mean to you. I just wanted to apologize. We are having a party for Amabella. And she really wants you to be there. The theme is Star Wars. Please bring your lightsaber. And it was like, oh, that's like a really sweet adult thing. That was good. And so they moved to Britain. Whereas Harper is like, I'm going to stay with my husband. And was like, yeah, because your husband's trash like you. Yep. Yep. Oh, they're both terrible. It's the evolved form of that one trash Pokemon, which is actually an insult to that Pokemon because that Pokemon's actually decent. I think it looks pretty cool. I was hoping they would follow them so Madeline Jane would never have to deal with her ever again, but alas. Wait, I think they moved too. It's like, yeah, go bother the British people. They'll all look even further down on us Americans. <laughs> well, they're Australians. Even better. Even, yeah, that's, you're right. Harper just sounds like an American. I think that's what it is. It's just that type of personality is very... That personality is universal. <laughs> I know, but working in customer service, I deal with people like that a lot. That personality is universal, as we have learned. But it was really weird getting used to the fact that the seasons were switched as someone who lives in the Northern Hemisphere to be reading about someone in the Southern Hemisphere and them talking about going to the beach on Christmas because it's summer. And it's like, that's... That's weird. <laughs> that was super cool. But obviously it's very normal for them. But that was weird. That's so nice. I thought it was kind of interesting that school started right after uh, winter or summer. Oh dear. So I thought it was very gripping. This book is almost 500 pages and I read it in a week as someone who's a super slow reader. So there were a lot of late nights where I just sat up and kept reading because I couldn't find a good stopping point because it was so interesting. And I think everything is extremely and appropriately complex and thoughtful. And they put a lot of thought into these female characters and their female issues dealing with second marriages and motherhood and domestic violence and all of these things were handled very thoughtfully. I enjoyed this book thoroughly. I actually got the audiobook for this one because I'm a slow reader, but I like to listen to audiobooks while I do random things about the house. So I managed to listen to this in a week. I actually finished before 
Sarah, which doesn't happen amazingly often. She finished first, yeah. I was actually texting you through the end and I was like, I'm going to explode. I want to talk about this so bad. And then I know who dies now. (laughs) It was very gripping. It was probably one of my favorite reads as of recently. The amount of emotions in it and I just, I couldn't put it down. I wanted to know what happened. I'm going to be driving to work and I'd sit in the car for a couple of minutes because I didn't want to stop reading. I was like, oh, I'm late to work, but I I don't want to keep reading, but I'm late to work. Um... (laughs) But it was a really good read. The characters I ended up caring for quite a bit. They're all very interesting people, except for Perry. He can uh, fall into a ditch. He's interesting in the villain way. No, I don't like him. Because his backstory plays into a lot of this. Nah, he sucks. But he, nah, he sucks. He sucks as a person, yes. But that doesn't mean he's not interesting. You're right, but he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> he's a villain in the good way. And he sucks. Exactly. He makes you feel like he sucks so much and you just have no remorse that he died. He's a good way in the way that Umbridge is a good villain. I absolutely hate that woman with every fiber of my being. I feel that way about Perry. He's a horrible person. Versus a Voldemort type villain where you're like, yes, get it. Get that evil thing. Yes. Voldemort's really funny when you read through him in the books. He has a lot of... We're talking about a completely different book series now, but he has several moments where someone will say something and he'll come around a corner and be like, yes! And say something really snarky. And I'm like, yes! Voldemort, get it! (laughs) (laughs) So. (laughs) Uh, So what... So my one question... (laughs) If I can remember how to talk. (laughs) I'm actually crying. My one question... (laughs) would be I wanted to know when she decided to kill Perry if she went into all of this wanting to kill him or if through the first draft she realized that we're talking about the author yes took me a second sorry or if during the first draft as she was writing all this out if that's when she decided because there's a famous quote by one of your favorite authors terry pratchett yes about how the first draft is all about telling yourself the story and so i was wondering if she went in with a lot of planning and knowing from before the first draft even began Perry is going to die or if as she was telling the story she realized this needs to center around Perry dying. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's a really good question. Beat that. <laughs> I don't think I will, you know? I, I really don't. <laughs> I know I've asked this for other books, but I do like the trend of wanting to know about the people in her life that she based some of these characters off of, just because these characters have a lot of in-depth emotions and personalities, and it feels like, to some extent, she would potentially know people like this or have people in her life like this yeah because i can't imagine her going through all three of these things at the same time her as a person so i feel like there would have to be other people that she was really close to that she would be able to pick their brain yeah so that would be really interesting conversation to find out who she knew or had met and was able to talk to about these things. So would you read this book again? Yes. Yes. That's not even a question. I definitely would read this book again. I didn't even have any notes to justify it. I just wrote the word yes. Yes. I definitely read this book again. This one may not even need to sit for very long before I read it again. (laughs) If I have time. Yeah, that is the thing. I don't know. I think I'd let it sit a little while just because everything is so fresh in my brain and it makes you read and causes so much emotion. So I might want to calm down a little bit. 
The next book we're reading is not nearly this emotional. My rating for this would probably be Tom's Coffee out of 10. Oh my god, Tom's Coffee. I want to try some of Tom's Coffee. Pumpkin Soup also sounded really good. So pumpkin soup out of 100 stars. I wanted to try the one muffin he made because it sounded really easy just without the macadamias. But I wonder if that would still taste good or not. I have no idea. I don't want to die, but I want to taste his muffins. <laughs> I don't want to die. That's all I want. <laughs> yeah, please don't eat. Oh, you're like a dog. Dogs can't have macadamia nuts either. I just said that. I'm so sorry. Thanks. <laughs> I'm like James. <laughs> you know, comparing you to a dog. Just whatever pops in his head comes out his mouth. It's what I love about him. He has his heart on his sleeve. You would know better than I. I was trying really hard not to cry. Oh, that's my maid of honor. It's my best friend's wedding. <laughs> and you actually really liked who I was marrying. Yes, James is a good bean. James is a good bean. He is. He let me spray him with a water bottle. <laughs> oh my goodness, I have so many stories. But we can get into those in later podcasts. My husband can be internet famous by association. I'll tell him. I'll tell the world. It's all good. Thank you so very much for listening. You can keep up to date with us by checking us out on Twitter or Instagram. And you can help support our podcast by checking us out on Patreon, where for just $1 a month, you can get our bonus episodes where we look at a movie adaptations to some of our favorite books. This month, we're reliving our middle school days with David Warner as we look at Swindle. In addition, you can join our Discord server where we talk about all kinds of books from different genres or you can even take part in deciding what book we cover next. Join us next time for our next book, which is going to be The Frog Princess by Edie Baker. The Disney movie The Princess and the Frog is loosely based on this novel and this novel is loosely based on The Princess and the Frog. It's a fun twist on it. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I'm Sam Reiner. And I'm Lizzie Sawyer. And we hope to see you and a friend here next time.